Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. Today's episode is probably going to be the hardest one for me to make. Constantly being reminded of the corruption of power in the minds of police officers throughout this country who are emboldened by an equally corrupt justice system and the systemic racism that these institutions were built on and continue to function off of is truly heartbreaking. The evils of humanity come in many shapes and forms, but the most powerful is, is that which comes from your government. Growing up, the pop culture I consumed made me believe that the police were there to serve and protect. They were the heroes, putting criminals and evildoers behind bars and bringing justice to our society. Now I know that could not be farther from the truth. I made it my mission to inform myself of the facts and I understand that a lot of what I'm going to argue can be perceived differently by different people. Hearing and understanding multiple perspectives is crucial in your own edification but I refuse to endorse the opinions of someone who does not wholeheartedly agree that black lives matter. You cannot say those words without bringing up the argument that all lives matter or proceed to defend the vile actions of some of the power-hungry cops who are out to harm others and betray the trust of the community then I genuinely believe you are a heartless, disgusting waste of life. Truly. The time for civility is long gone and action is being taken by the people. The people that are tired of living in fear, tired of nothing changing, tired of not seeing justice take place. I refuse to validate the opinions of racist white people who selfishly promote the idea of inclusivity when it is them who are feeling excluded. And to feel this after watching a worthless pig take an innocent man's life by pushing his knee against his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, despite bystanders screaming at him to get up, pleading with him to show some humanity, how dare these people say their lives matter? Anything that challenges the status quo, which in America is meant to maintain white superiority, is seen as an act of aggression that needs to be put down. Just look at the two types of protests that have gone down in America within the last few months, as well as the president's reaction to them. We have people comparing stay-at-home orders to slavery on one hand, and people demanding justice for the cycle of abuse that Americans face in the hands of police on the other. White privilege has never been so obvious. Being privileged enough to live your life without fear of being killed by the police because of the color of your skin is one thing, but abusing that or denying that people in this country do not live in fear of the systems and created to oppress them is another thing. White racism and police brutality are partners in crime in this country, so why wouldn't the, poli the, the people enacting them stick with each other? The entire police system in America is rigged. It was never meant to serve or protect its citizenry. It was always about control from the very beginning. Learning the history of the police in America and its connection with white racism is crucial to understanding the Black Lives Matter movement. Some might think this would serve best for those who are ignorant enough to about the subject matter that they actively argue against it, but I think that those people are too far gone. It'll be falling on deaf ears. Why else do you think that these people ignore the advice and warnings of health professionals and experts in favor of receiving medical advice from the president regarding COVID-19? You can't answer to stupidity with knowledge, but you can cure ignorance with it. We're all ignorant about most things and maybe some of you would benefit from learning a little bit about historical connections of the Black Lives Matter movement. We can then use that knowledge to spread awareness and inform others who might need this information. After all, knowledge is power. So why do people claim that police brutality has a deep connection with systemic racism? Or better yet, what even is systemic racism? I don't think giving you the book definition would be enough. So here is a clip from artist Paul Rucker's TED Talk over the issue and the symbols of systemic racism, which I think beautifully describes the many components of a type of racism ingrained into the fabric of this nation. After making so many ropes, I realized that the policies the Klan had in place or wanted to have in place 100 years ago are in place today. We have segregated schools, neighborhoods, workplaces. And it's not the people wearing hoods that are keeping these policies in place. My work is about the long-term impact of slavery. We're not just dealing with the residue of systemic racism. It's the basis of every single thing we do. 
Again, we have intentionally segregated neighborhoods, workplaces, and schools. We have voter suppression. We have disproportionate representation of minorities incarcerated. We have environmental racism. We have police brutality. The stealth aspect of racism is part of its power. When you're discriminated against, you can't always prove you're being discriminated against. Racism has the power to hide, and when it hides, it's kept safe because it blends in. The basis of capitalism in America is slavery. Slaves were the capital in capitalism. The first Grand Wizard in 1868, Nathan Bedford Forrest, was a Confederate soldier and a millionaire slave trader. The wealth that was created from chattel slavery, thus slaves as property, would boggle the mind. Cotton sales alone in 1860 equal $200 million. That would equal $5 billion today. A lot of that wealth can be seen today through generational wealth. The fact that this country was built off the work of slaves is undeniable. Denying it would mean rewriting history to fit your cause, which always leads to dangerous consequences. So critical were slaves for America's economy that actions were taken by slave owners to ensure that none of, none of what they deemed as their property escaped. As an article from Time Magazine titled, How the U.S. Got Its Police Force reads, quote, In the South, the economics that drove the creation of police forces were centered not on the protection of shipping interests, as they primarily were in northern cities, but on the preservation of the slavery system. Some of the primary policing institutions that there, there were the slave patrols tasked with chasing down runaways and preventing slave revolts. Additionally, during Reconstruction, many local sheriffs functioned in a way analogous to the earlier slave patrols, enforcing segregation and the disenfranchisement of freed slaves. On top of this, people are being used throughout the country to bring law and order, defined by the controlling interests, through violent means. Here's Chenderai Kumanyika, Associate Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers University, being interviewed by Elsa Chang for NPR on the subject. So the dominant history, or the main mainstream history, is that the first modern police department in the United States was in Boston in 1838. Hmm. But, you know, there's kind of a problem with that. And the problem is that in places like Charleston and in the Carolinas, there were already organized forces of over 100 people, right, who had to do with policing and things like slave patrols. These were like um, unofficial police departments, if you will. That's right. Exactly. Yes. And... Um, but, you know, there were also laws going all the way back to the 17th century that empowered all white people to catch slaves. But I think it's too simple to say that policing only evolved from slave patrols. Police really evolved around a, a lot what I would call labor control. And so in the South, that was controlling slaves. But in the North, that actually had to do with controlling any inconvenient population, especially labor. And so the, the institution of policing is very much connected to the enactment of, of violence against strikers and union breaking. So eventually, someone comes into this picture whose name is August Vollmer. And who is he? So August Vollmer is kind of like a really important figure in the history of policing, right? He starts out as Berkeley's police, police chief in California in 1905, and he sort of travels all around the country and really revolutionizes policing. When you hear people say, well, policing is just about protecting the public, and it really doesn't have anything to do with race. August Vollmer, who's considered in many ways the father of modern policing, he would disagree with that. Really? How? How does he see race playing a role? Well, one of the things that Vollmer observes is that very aggressive interrogation techniques, things he called third-degree techniques, are tolerated when they're applied against minorities, the poor, and recent immigrants, 
but rarely tolerated when they're applied against the middle and upper classes. You know, he notices this thing which really kind of implicates race and class, but he doesn't really necessarily care about human rights. He observes that it's an obstacle to people building trust in the police department, that it actually hurts their ability to get convictions. And so he recommends all kinds of modernizing measures. Some of those are, are administrative things, like he wants to give police chiefs and police executives more power. And then he's a big advocate hmm. of technology. How did that get to the dynamic that we see today between white police officers and black and brown men? Well, you know, I think that typically we think that um, we look when we look at these sort of difficult periods of history, and I, when, often when we say difficult, I just want to be real, what we really mean is oppressive, right? Um, we think, well, it started bad, but maybe it got a little bit better. But in the case of policing, that's not what happens at all. It gets much worse. You know, even in Minneapolis, policing is really corrupt, right? The mayor uh, of Minneapolis in 1900 actually hires his brother as the police chief. And so the police are deeply beholden and involved in a corrupt political machine. Mm. And then you get to the 1960s in Minneapolis, and there's, you know, all the suppression that exists of Black people in the police leads to riots, right, in 1967. So the north side of Minneapolis erupts in riots, and the mayor proposed a number of police reform initiatives, and none of those ultimately solve any of the real problems. I mean, yes, as you're pointing out, the Minneapolis Police Department has had a long, troubled history. Do you feel that that police department's emblematic of a lot of other police departments in this country that have faced long-running complaints that seem to go unheeded? And maybe the problem isn't whether the police are doing their job. It's maybe the police was set up to do the wrong thing. Right. Well, I once heard Mark Lamont Hill say, the problem isn't that the police are broken and we need to fix it. The problem is that the police are working and we need to break it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, what you see in Minneapolis and their history from 1867 to now, over 150 years of failed reform, you also see in Philadelphia. You also see in New York. You also see on the West Coast. You see it throughout the country. So Minneapolis is an example of a national story, which is that police have had over 150 years in America to improve and they never have. And so people often think about this idea of like dramatic changes to the system right. as kind of unrealistic or not practical, right? But the urgency of the health and economic crisis brought on by this, this COVID thing really makes the priorities and steps we need to take extremely clear and concrete. Corruption and violence from methodical systems of operations is the origins of police departments throughout the nation. As a result, police corruption and violence are what the Black Lives Matter movement was created in response to. As Dr. Kumanyika states, however, the issue with police has not been a solely racial one. There is a greater need for control that systemic racism gives them the opportunity to act. The civil rights movement is a perfect historical precedent for what is happening right now in our country. During the 1950s, post-World War II America saw a growing prosperity and an economic boom that resulted in a fast-growing middle class. Technological and infrastructural innovations were bringing ideas of the future to the now, and an era of newfound peace had begun. At least that's how some people saw this time period. Others, on the other hand, were busy participating in bus boycotts and sit-ins and other peaceful protests to demand that black Americans be seen and treated as equals to whites in the eyes of the law. We have learned the names of civil rights leaders such as Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and Malcolm X, but we, we must not forget all the people who fought for their rights and the rights of others. 
This is what is happening right now in America. So many unnamed black Americans are tired of living in fear of the police and they're protesting. They're tired of white Americans like Gregory and Trevor McMichael being able to take black lives with little to no investigation into the matter until the internet demands it. They're tired of an increased police presence in their communities, of the militarization of the police, of the prison industrial complex that ensures thousands of corporations profit from mass incarceration. Earlier I said that the entire police system is rigged, but really every system in America is rigged for the oppression of certain groups of people, people deemed less desirable based on the color of their skin, their economic status, or their citizenship status. Power and control is what this racist country was founded on, both in the sense that they were trying to get away from British control, and in the sense that early Americans flexed their power to control native and slave populations, and would later attempt to exert their control over immigrants. These are ideals that the country was founded on, and ideals that are reflected in both military and police conduct. One thing that we see a lot of in terms of the relationship between racial and ethnic composition of uh, counties and the militarization of police is that there's a positive relationship, that cities that have more diverse I really don't want to use the word diverse, but more ethnically fragmented um, communities tend to have larger uh, acquisition of uh, militarized, uh, military items. So in terms of studies of police militarization, one of the largest problems is the a actual data that you can get in terms of militarization. And so we've heard a lot about militarization because this basically came out of the Ferguson protests in August 2014 and everyone heard about this new program called the 1033 program from the Pentagon. So the 1033 program was started in 1989, but really kind of built up in uh, 1997, and in 2006 is when agencies really start to acquire surplus items. So what the military does is when they have excess surplus items, they go through the Pentagon to allow local law enforcement agencies to acquire this at very minimal cost. So since the Ferguson protest, we've kind of had a visual uh, impact, we saw the visual impact of militarization. So there was data available from that, but the problem with police militarization is that it's much larger. And so when you think about police militarization, there's kind of four dimensions that we can look at. Material, cultural, organizational, and operational. And so material is the actual item, so we think about the 1033 program. When we talk about cultural, we talk about language, so the war on drugs, the war on terror, that kind of language that's used by the police when it's actually used by the, should be used by the military. When we think about operational, we think about no-knock raids, actual military-type tactics that are used by local law enforcement agencies. And then finally, organizational is when militarization is actually normalized through having SWAT teams, uh, drug task force, terrorism units. So within agencies, you have military-type organizations. So when we think about militarization, impact of militarization on communities, we have to look at all four dimensions. And when we talk about the 1033 program, we're narrowing our kind of focus on one aspect when there's so many more aspects. And so that's one of the problems with kind of doing the research on militarization. We just don't have enough on the other dimensions of militarization. This brings us to the issues of today. These systemic issues have been allowed to flourish in this country and almost never seen as anything other than the status quo. The police we see today have been shaped to be seen as, as well as act as, a military force. You need only take one look at pictures and videos of protests of the highly equipped yet poorly trained wielders of weapons meant to subjugate peaceful protesters. But even without the protests, without the riot gear, everyday officers across the nation are equipped with lethal firearms obtained from surplus military supplies. 
Since 1996, in response to the war on drugs, the Department of Defense transferred $4.3 billion in military equipment to local and state police. After 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security made additional equipment available to local law enforcement through federal funds for terrorism prevention. And although it's hard to get data on all 50 states, estimates have been made that the average training for police officers in America lasts about nine months. But as an example, and for more accurate numbers, I've looked at the training requirements for the Oklahoma City Police Department. On the website, it states that new recruits must undergo paid police academy training, which lasts 28 weeks. The course of instruction is set to include patrol tactics, police community relations, criminal law, constitutional law, emergency vehicle operation, firearms training, self-defense tactics, principles of investigation, bilingual training for law enforcement, CPR, and first aid. Afterwards, recruits are assigned to a field training officer program for between four to six months. In total, about 10 to 12 months of training. I'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not you think that is enough time, but the point I'm trying to make is that it's very easy to become a cop. If it weren't, you wouldn't have so many people do it. I mean, the requirements around the country usually are only that you are 21 years of age, have no criminal record, and have a valid license. It's little wonder why people like Derek Chauvin or Daniel Holtzclaw made it as officers. The militarization of the police also acted as an unofficial call to arms to Americans looking to possess a little bit of power that they can then abuse. I cannot sit here and tell you that all cops are bad or that all cops are in it to wield a weapon and abuse civilians. That would be disingenuous. But I just don't see these quote-unquote few bad apples as joining the force with the intention of protecting and serving their community in mind. Instead, I would posit that all the police officers we see abusing their power and hurting or killing innocent people for little to no reason as actual psychopaths or sociopaths. I'm not a psychologist, but we can look at what the DSM lists as the 16 behavioral characteristics that define antisocial personality disorder, or in other words, sociopathy. They are superficial charm and good intelligence, absence of delusions and other signs of irrational thinking, absence of nervousness or neurotic manifestations, unreliability, untruthfulness and insincerity, lack of remorse and shame, inadequately motivated antisocial behavior, poor judgment and failure to learn by experience, pathologic egocentricity and incapacity for love, general poverty and major affective reactions, specific loss of insight, unresponsiveness in general interpersonal relations, fantastic and in uninviting behavior without call and sometimes without, suicide threats rarely carried out, sex life and personal, trivial, and poorly integrated, and failure to follow any life. A lot of these would depend on individuals closest to these killers to confirm, but a lot of them can be captured on camera. And a lot of these, like unreliability and untruthfulness, could be applied to entire police departments. In Derek Chauvin's case, lack of remorse or shame and poor judgment and failure to learn by experience are two characteristics that fit him to the T, especially considering that Chauvin had 18 prior complaints filed against them with the Minneapolis Police Department's internal affairs. I know, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be trying to draw conclusions that would be impossible for me to prove, but I just need help understanding why it is that these actions are still committed to this day by the people that are meant to protect us. Why do I get to live when people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Daniel Shaver, Kelly Thomas, and Philando Castile don't? Why do we call on police to commit acts of police brutality on citizens peacefully protesting police brutality? People like Dunya Zaire, Martin Gugino, Messiah Young, Tanya Pilgrim, Sarah Grossman, and countless others who have been beaten, maced, violently shoved to the ground, tased, and even killed by the police during these protests. What about members of the press who themselves become victims of the violent nature of a militarized police force? 
I've tried to give some reasons as to why this happens on an individual level. There's a historical precedent as well as a sense of empowerment that translates to individuals giving themselves permission to act irrationally, violently, knowing full well that they will be protected by the system meant to protect its citizens from becoming victims. Maybe I should stop looking at the individual perpetrators and instead look at the system at large, the system that ensures that there is no such thing as police accountability. The fact of the matter is that after completing those 10 or so months of training, you have been granted access to a special tier of citizenry. Cops are afforded special privileges solely because of their profession. There's an ex expectation of respect from the rest of the citizenry that I wholeheartedly disagree with, even if police brutality was not an issue. One has to understand that a career choice should not afford you special privileges, or, nor should there be any expectations for others to treat you with a heightened sense of respect. The same, in my opinion, can be applied to servicemen and women, for example. You don't get to use your status as a veteran, or in this case as a police officer, to demand special treatment from everyone else. Your reasons for choosing what that career path are yours and yours alone, and there should be an expectation of common courtesy and human decency from others, but nothing more. Like I said, from everything we have been exposed to thanks to the internet, there is reason to believe that having what is considered an earned sense of authority is a leading reason for people to join the force. Being able to push people to the ground, beat them, mace them, or ultimately shoot them is one of those perceived pr special privileges that aren't so much products of social constructs as much as they are defended and promoted by the criminal justice system that heavily favors public officials like police officers over everyday citizens. Any sociopath can become a police officer, and any police officer can commit crimes that would otherwise be punished if punished by civilians with no repercussions. Something like qualified immunity comes to mind when discussing this. What qualified immunity does is it says, yes, there was a violation, this was illegal, this was unconstitutional, but the plaintiff still loses. UC Davis law professor Gabriel Chin says decades ago, the Supreme Court decided that police officers needed protections against unnecessary civil lawsuits when committing honest mistakes. The problem is not all mistakes are honest and yet they're still protected. Even police officers who have lied in affidavits for search warrants, people who have, uh, police officers who have killed people without a, a very good reason, shot people, stolen things in the course of their duty. He says even with video proof, George Floyd's family is going to have a hard time holding accused former police officer Derek Chauvin accountable in civil court. Because what the courts look for to get around qualified immunity is basically a case that's very, very similar sometimes exactly the same. In other words, for victims or their families to sue successfully, they have to show that their rights were clearly established, meaning that there has to already be a similar case when in court. And that is what some see as a problem. We will never find out what's clearly established because of qualifying immunity. On the other hand, he says officers do not have an easy job. And this was the Supreme Court's original rationale. If they don't act, they could get fired or disciplined, and if they do act, they could uh, be sued. Legal experts and human rights groups are calling on the Supreme Court to reconsider qualified immunity for officers. That's right. Unless there has been an exact precedent set, individual cops cannot be personally sued for committing crimes. 
It boggles the mind that we live in a country that still celebrates and sticks to archaic legislation and documents as scripture instead of changing laws that are deemed necessary to evolve. After years of clear evidence of police brutality and the need for criminal cops to be brought to justice, it is only now, after widespread protests taking place in all 50 states, as well as countries around the world, that legislators are stepping up to bring change. It shouldn't take this much to make change. It is the job of these elected officials to represent their constituents and make change when necessary to make America as great as it has the potential of being. But a large problem with that is people's insistence that voting does nothing, that that matter that they are powerless. It's a vicious cycle, really. The rich and powerful fund programs and institutions and enact political actions that maintain their status while keeping other people in the lower rings of the social ladder, i.e. the increased presence of a more militarized police force on in lower-income communities that has resulted in the mass incarceration that feeds into the prison industrial complex, gerrymandering that ensures that a certain group of people do not receive equal representation as another, the war on drugs that allowed the perception that black and brown people are menaces to society, which in turn led to further legislation like stop-and-frisk laws that essentially legalized the, pro- the profiling of minority races, etc., etc. Police are but a part of the problem, but they are the most obvious one. It's the part of the problem that news channels choose to cover because of the inherent sense sensationalization of these stories. Violence gets more views and clicks after all. It's no wonder why police officers are protected legally when they commit acts of evil on the clock. It's what is desired of them. Just think of how many people try to defend the actions of Derek Chauvin, for example. Seriously, people have this perception that cops inherently can do no wrong as they are agents of justice, that everything they do is justified. People can go through that entire video of the remaining ounce of humanity leaving Chauvin's body just as George Floyd's life left his and bring up the fact that Floyd has a criminal record, that he served time for aggravated assault in the early 2000s and that he was under the influence of fentanyl and methamphetamines during the incident that cost him his life, or that he was caught using a counterfeit $20 bill as if all of this justifies the inhumane way he was treated by the most inhuman kind of police officer. Are you really telling me that it was okay for that man to lose his life in a way that could have been so easily preventable if Chauvin had an ounce of fucking empathy? I truly believe that people that have made this argument are the scum of the earth. Genuinely believe that. Right there with people committing shit like needlessly killing others. Because defending it in my book is just as bad as committing it. It is because of people like this that this evil system has been allowed to exist for so long. Because Floyd, as a black man with a criminal record, deserves to be judged, but Chauvin, as a cop with numerous criminal complaints filed against him, can be placed under equal scrutiny as Floyd because his life is automatically more valuable. One, for being a cop, of course, but also for being white. That I am convinced of. Legal criminals like this will continue to plague the nation, unless they are rid of. No, I'm not inciting violence. I am instead calling for widespread criminal justice reform as have thousands of people before me. People that are tired of seeing a clear problem with how the criminal justice system functions and how it favors those with a badge, cops are thought of as good, but cops aren't the agents of justice they are made out to look. They instead are purveyors of injustice, of pushing the vicious cycle meant to subjugate those who are considered as lesser people. A lot of what is to go into answering racial injustices that have been occurring in our country with impunity starts with equalizing cops. That is, ensuring that they are held accountable for their actions the same way any one of us would be. If anything, they should be held to an even higher standard seeing as they are trained professionals meant to protect and to serve the members of their community. This must start at the legal level before any social changes are brought up. It should go without saying that it takes a long time to change people's long-held perceptions of things, especially long-standing institutions that they have always believed in. But bringing legislative changes could ease the social transition to a transformed society. This, after so many long and sad years of nothing changing, is finally happening. 
Earlier this week, Democrats in both chambers of Congress introduced legislation that would address this. An article by The Hill reads, quote, Democrats in both chambers introduced sweeping reforms on Monday designed to combat racial disparities in the criminal justice system. The party's much-awaited legislative response to recent police violence against African Americans that sparked mass protests across the country and beyond. Crafted by leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus, the Justice and Policing Act aims to rein in the use of excessive force by law enforcers, particularly the violence targeting blacks and other minorities who died disproportionately at the hands of police. The package, the most aggressive crackdown on law enforcement to arrive in decades, would establish a federal ban on chokeholds, eliminate the legal shield protecting police from lawsuits, mandate the use of body cameras nationwide, limit federal transfers of military-style weapons to local police, ban military-style weapons for police, and create a national database disclosing the names of officers with patterns of abuse. It also includes a bill passed by the House earlier this year that would make lynching a federal hate crime. This is more than likely passing in a Democrat majority House, but will absolutely be shut down by the Republicans in the Senate. It's time like these that truly show how important it is to go out and vote. I'm going to do my part to ensure that one, police elitism is trumped by an equal accountability for their actions, and two, that we live in a country where our president doesn't refer to people protesting something like social distancing as good people, and then turns around and calls the National Guard and threatens to kill civilians protesting for social justice. Finally, I would like to address the Black Lives Matter movement and the counter-movements that have risen up as an attempt to diminish the seriousness of the inequality in the black experience in America. As a non-black American, I would never assume to know what it is that black Americans experience every day in this country. Everything I talked about today, I would like to think, helps put into perspective the issues that the Black Lives Matter movement is attempting to address and correct. But there is a lot of people that cringe whenever they hear the phrase Black Lives Matter. It's almost as if hearing this phrase physically harms them. As I mentioned last episode, bigotry is perpetuated by, by jealousy, and I can't help but see that at play here. I mean, what else can explain why people think it necessary to remind black people that all lives matter when they are pro- protesting the well-recorded history of injustice and police brutality in America? It's the need to be at the center of attention that Trump exemplifies perfectly that I feel a lot of these people gravitate towards. Their lack of empathy to actual suffering leads to moments like these, where Michael Mira, the president of the New York Police Benevolent Association, showed a complete lack of empathy and a new level of tone deafness by bitching about how cops have been treated these last few weeks. No, seriously, take a listen. Good afternoon. 375 million interactions with the public every year. 375 million interactions. Overwhelmingly positive responses. Overwhelmingly positive responses. But I read in the papers all week, we all read in the papers, that in the black community, mothers are worried about their children getting home from school without being killed by a cop. What world are we living in? That doesn't happen. It does not happen. I am not Derek Chabon. They are not him. He killed someone. We didn't. We are restrained. And you know what? I'm saying this to all the cops here. Because you know what? Everybody's trying to shame us. The legislators. The press. Everybody's trying to shame us into being embarrassed about our profession. Well, you know what? This isn't stained by someone in Minneapolis. It's still got a shine on it. And so do theirs. So do theirs. Stop treating us like animals and thugs. 
and start treating us with some respect. That's what we're here today to say. We've been left out of the conversation. We've been vilified. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Trying to make us embarrassed of our profession. 375 million interactions. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly positive. Nobody talks about all the police officers that were killed in the last week in the United States of America, and there were a number of them. We don't condone Minneapolis. We roundly reject what he did as disgusting. It's disgusting. It's not what we do. It's not what police officers do. Our legislators abandoned us. The press is vilifying us. Well, you know what, guys? I'm proud to be a cop, and I'm going to continue to be proud to be a cop until the day I retire. And that's all I have to say. By the way, Eric Garner, who muttered the same words as George Floyd and many others before them, before they died or were killed, was murdered by NYPD officers, so let's not go there. If cops really condone the actions of killer cops, then they would show as much passion about police reform that would affect the bad apples that have been allowed to contaminate the hearts and minds of so many others, like Michael Mira here instead of bitching about how cops have been treated these last couple of weeks. Or maybe even show an ounce of empathy towards black Americans and not make statements like it doesn't happen when referring to black mothers fearing for their children being murdered by pigs because, again, it does happen. And they know it happens. Michael Mira may have never killed a person. He might not have engaged in, a, in police brutality and any sort of abuse of power. He might be the ideal cop that does indeed protect and serve his community, but all of that is meaningless when he says shit like this. Because of shit like this, he is a bad cop. He's a pig. Because police brutality, like I said, is allowed to happen by those with the power to make change. As a union president, he could have used his platform and status to denounce police brutality and call for police reform. He could have been on the right side of history. The same can be said of people claiming that all lives matter or flying the blue lives matter flag, which some OU football players seem to proudly represent. Blue lives don't matter because they aren't a thing. Cops make the choice to put on that uniform every day and can take it off once they get home. I mean, why wouldn't they make that choice? They have qualified immunity and can carry a gun and a badge that instantly serves as a get-out-of-jail-free card no matter how many crimes or abuses of power they commit. Black people can't make the decision to not be racially discriminated against and profiled, unfortunately. They just can't. They have to live in their skin, which is seen as a yellow star of David by the police, identifying who they can get away with abusing the rights of. Rest in peace to every police officer that has been killed in the line of duty, but they made the choice every day to put that uniform on and go to work. Black people didn't choose to be black, and they definitely didn't choose to be discriminated against in all facets of life. I really don't know what else to say to anyone who disagrees with the protest or who believes that blue lives matter or who doesn't believe in white privilege or who doesn't believe in police reform. I just don't. Empathy can be taught. I genuinely believe that. But some people are just unteachable. You can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped. It just sucks that because of this fact, thousands are physically, sexually, and mentally abused or even killed by the police. I will never blindly respect someone because of their job, and I will never be proud to be American until all Americans, regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, economic status, or occupation, are treated equally and fairly under the eyes of the law. Fuck the police.
Fuck the ones that kill people. Fuck the ones that beat people. Fuck the ones that rape people. Fuck the ones that do nothing. The ones that say nothing. And fuck the ones that are proud of who they are. Please stay safe. Stay sane and stay informed. Help the movement in any way you can, whether it's donating, protesting, educating yourself, discussing these issues with others. Whatever you can do, do it. But the biggest thing we can do, and the easiest, in my opinion, would be to vote. Not just for the presidential election, but participating in your local and state elections to put empathetic humans in office. Black lives matter. They are important. They are needed. They deserve the right to exist. The right to live. The right to be free and happy. Thank you for listening. Have a beautiful day, and God bless. Goodbye.